let's check it out. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. The word that uh, I have to share, I believe, is incredibly timely, not only for the season we've gone through, but it continues, you know. Uh, what with uh, recent COVID, I don't know how many people I know that have had COVID during this time. Uh, we actually had to postpone our Christmas celebration because it swept through a portion of our family. Uh, we're going to do it next Saturday, and it's really kind of antsy. I look at the presents under the tree, and they just sit there, you know. But um, so... That's why, you know, this word I really feel is, is going to be something that really ministers some grace to us. I was sitting there, I don't want to detract too much, but I was sitting there and I've been receiving texts from uh, Scott McFeeders, who is the son of uh, Susan and Scott McFeeders, Susan Sanders. So you're talking about Bill's grandson, Bill's grandson. And he had COVID, he was in the hospital, he's out on oxygen, he's just got all kinds of complications. He's a fine young man, he loves the Lord, he's leaning on the Lord. And uh, it was just very hard uh, to read that. And uh, right now I wanted to pray for him, and maybe you could remember him in prayer, but he's one of many that are facing these kinds of issues. Um, you know, our sister has surgery tomorrow, uh, different things. Uh, there isn't any one of us that couldn't think of someone right now, probably fairly close. Used to be kind of far away, but fairly close that isn't going through something like that. But Scott's a young man, and uh, Lord, we just lift Scott before you. And we just ask for your grace to be extended to him, your strength, your health, your healing. We know your presence is with him. He has confessed that. Lord, we ask for alleviation of pain. He's in incredible pain. We just ask you to cause that to subside and for this to pass quickly and for you to give him healing. We have continually sought you, O Lord, for the manifestation of divine healing, to see that restored to the church, that which occurs just powerfully and almost immediately as we pray and seek your face on behalf of those who are suffering. God, we pray for that to be restored to the church. So bless our brother. Bless our brother at this time in Jesus' name and encourage him. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title of the message is The Purpose of Suffering in the Life of the Believer. I was uh, teaching in September in an adult Wednesday Bible study in an Assembly God church, and the pastor, who's a good friend of mine, he asked me, he said, you know, I know that you follow the mystics, and uh, there's a lot of uh, different ones that, you know, most of the revelations, things they get are through suffering. He said, could you just share about different ones and the things that they had to bear? And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, that's kind of thin, you know. I just wanted to add something to it. So basically, I put something together in that vein, but then I went ahead and did this teaching. And so I wanted to share with you the first part as well. So I'm going to talk about just a few people here that we are familiar with, different saints that uh, experienced extreme suffering. We have Martin Luther, and you think of Martin Luther as being very, you know, strong, very outgoing, and all the different things we know about him. Luther suffered from kidney stones uh, severely. Severe hemorrhoids, dysentery, gout, and an ulcer on his left leg that never healed. Luther's death was due to a coronary thrombosis during the last 19 years of his life. In addition to these natural diseases, Luther also suffered from a reoccurring attack of a peculiar symptomatology. Luther himself and his friends considered these seizures to be no natural disease, 
but Satan punching his flesh. The first of these attacks occurred on July 6, 1527, when Luther was 43 years old. It began with a roaring tinnitus in his left ear, which increased dramatically. He seemed to occupy the left half of his head. A state of sickness and collapse followed. However, consciousness was retained throughout the whole period. After a night's rest, all the symptoms had subsided except for the tinnitus, which from that day on continued for all the following years in various intensities. Similar attacks with increased vertigo as leading symptoms seized Luther at irregular intervals and distressed him extremely. That's on top of the other things. Uh, there's a story about his kidney stones. Anybody that's had a kidney stone knows what it's like. I finally had one, man, I'll tell you. Just, even painkillers can't quite get to it totally. On one occasion at a conference in Hess, the blockage caused by the kidney and bladder stones was so bad that Luther seemed near to death. There was retention of urine and gross swelling of his body, all remedies having failed to help. He insisted on going back to his native Saxony to die, and the elector John Frederick encouraged him to travel along the mountain roads in his own ornate coach. The rough roads must have dislodged the stones, causing the obstruction, for when the cart stopped, Luther was able to pass two gallons of urine and slowly recover. We have no idea. Did I read? I read these things to make me feel good. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon suffered from lifelong deep depression. He said that it would come upon him like a dark cloud and would overshadow him to where all he could do was walk and pray. He would have preaching assignments, and as uh, he would approach the platform and rise to the podium, the cloud lifted. The anointing of God would come upon him. He would have freedom to preach God's word. Then as he left the podium to descend the platform, it would settle upon him again. He said, infirmities may be no determent to a man's career of special usefulness. They may even have been imposed upon him by divine wisdom as necessary qualifications for his peculiar course of service. To equip him, excuse me. He said, pain has probably in some cases developed genius hunting out the soul which otherwise might have slept like a lion in its den. He said, this depression comes over me whenever the Lord is preparing a larger blessing for my ministry. The cloud is black before it breaks and overshadows before it yields its deluge of mercy. Depression has now become to me as a prophet in rough clothing, a John the Baptist, heralding the nearer coming of my Lord's richer benison. So have far better men found it. The scouring of the vessel has fitted it for the master's use. Immersion in suffering has preceded the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Madame Goyon, a very famous French Catholic mystic who mentored many other uh, mystics. If you kind of look and read, uh, they, they are very connected. It was a similar time period. She was imprisoned in dark, fetid cells. She was a lovely lady and caught smallpox in prison. It attacked her face, causing disfigurement and extreme pain. She stated she could not even find comfort on a soft pillow. She said, prayer is the key of perfection and of sovereign happiness. It is the efficacious means of getting rid of all vices and acquiring all virtue. For the way to become perfect is to live in the presence of God. Prayer alone can bring you into his presence and keep you there continually. And as she wrote in one of her poems, there was a period when I chose a time and place for prayer, but now I pray constantly. Richard Wormbrandt, who many of you know or knew, he passed away, but he was here many times. He was a very good friend. 
I was thinking about Richard and some of the things he wrote, and I realized he was a modern mystic. <laughs> he really was. The things that he came up with were just amazing. He spent 14 years in prison for his faith, three years in solitary confinement. He was beaten and tortured daily. He was starved and he was drugged. He had no feelings in his ankles and feet from the beatings that took place on the soles of his feet. He would preach sitting in a chair and stocking feet. He said once that although his body had been released from prison and torture, that his soul had never left and remained in prison. He claimed that he nurtured this reality that he might be a clear representation of all those still imprisoned and under torture. You can imagine that. He never had a good night's sleep. I was talking to uh, Ray Thorne, and he said, you know, people went into the bedroom after Richard had been there, and the sheets were actually torn in shreds. That's what went on in his night nighttime. Mother Teresa, I got to meet Mother Teresa in 1986. It was a real divine appointment. I was actually able to talk with her personally. She was holding my hand and patting it while she talked to me. And we told her about the drug rehab center, and that was really on her heart. She thought that was wonderful. Beautiful lady. Privately, Teresa experienced doubts and struggled in her religious beliefs, which lasted for 50 years until the end of her life. She expressed grave doubts about God's existence and pain over her lack of faith. That's just utterly amazing. I recently read also where uh, Mother Teresa's feet were grossly deformed, but that was through an action of her own. They would give shoes to the sisters, and uh, she would let everyone else take the shoes, and then she would wear whatever's left. And it uh, deformed her, her feet. These are just a few, and I'm sure that you could mention others. But uh, this is something we need to face readily, that there is suffering and that Christians do suffer. And, and you know, I was thinking about even even if it's suffering because of sin, you know, having once repented, uh, we should not have to suffer, but we do suffer, and there's a purpose to this suffering. So the first question I want to answer is, is it God's will that Christians suffer? I'm addressing this because there's a large contingency in the church, in the spirit-filled church, that doesn't believe Christians are supposed to suffer. Or if they do suffer, it's just persecution. In fact, uh, I've heard them say that Paul's thorn in the flesh was actually those that persecuted him. You know, they go pretty far with these things. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7, if you have your Bibles. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. If you know me, we're going to go through some verses here. 1, 6 through 7. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials of the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We need to look into this. What is this saying? It's saying here, number one, you're to rejoice. And number two, it says, if need be, if it is necessary. What it says here, you can rejoice because God only allows suffering in your life if it is necessary. That's what that says. Only if it is necessary. 1 Peter 4, it has a purpose. 1 Peter 4, verse 12 through 14. Beloved, do not think it strange. Now what this is saying is don't be surprised. Don't be taken back. It's something normal. Don't do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing is happening to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. We're not to be surprised. We're to expect these things. Finally, Peter sums up his thoughts on suffering with this incredible verse, 1 Peter 4, 19. 1 Peter 4, 19. Therefore, 
Let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Now, what this says to me is that as a Christian, I only suffer because it's God's will and it's necessary. That's what this tells me. That he's doing something that I don't understand. I say, well, Lord, I don't understand this. And sometimes he shows us, sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes it's very internal. But if you look at this word suffer in the Greek language, it's the word pasco. And it means to experience pain, to feel, to have passion, to suffer. Basically, what we're saying is it's a general word for suffering. It encompasses all suffering. It's not just this kind or that kind. It's physical, mental, spiritual, suffering. These verses are applicable to suffering. It doesn't leave anything out. It doesn't leave anything out. So it says, in fact, that there is times of suffering. That the only way it can happen if it's, if it, if as, as if it's God's will and that it's necessary, it has a purpose. So what is the purpose of suffering? Number one, we learn obedience through what we suffer. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Hebrews 5, verse 8. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Let's go right to Philippians 2. Verse 8, Philippians 2, verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name, which is above every name. Obedience was the issue of Jesus' life and actually the point of his death. He was obedient even unto death. In John 5, 19 through 20. John 5, 19 through 20. It says, Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son does in like manner. Jesus only did what the Father was doing. John 8, 28 through 30. John 8, 28 through 30. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things, and He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. He was consistently obedient. It says He learned obedience through what He suffered. Through his obedience, he was pleasing to God. And it says, therefore, God was with him. He was never alone. Now, I was thinking about this. You know, God is always with us, but there are times where he is with us. The manifest presence of God, the power of God, this is what Jesus was talking about. And what I read into this myself is that if I, if I pursue this myself, then, in fact, God will manifest his presence in my life in that way. Jesus was not motivated by success. He was not motivated by results. He was motivated by our obedience, by his obedience. Our fulfillment should not come from seeing results, but rather from knowing that through our obedience we are pleasing to the Father. And we learn obedience through what we suffer. There's another verse we're going to get to which talks about that we no longer pursue the lust of sin, but we pursue the will of God. There's other verses, they, they cross over. Number two, suffering perfects us. It sanctifies and cleanses us. Hebrews 5, 8 through 9, which we already uh, read. I want to read the last part. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And then it says, having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey. Hebrews 2, verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom all things and by whom all things 
in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Perfect through suffering. So I was thinking about perfect. So I, I, I looked it up, and the word is uh, talio, and it means to bring to completion, to accomplish or finish something. So it isn't kind of the perfection we're thinking about. We're talking about to bring to completion. I, I, I got this one time, to bring into maturity through suffering, to bring into completion. Of course, the final completion and perfection of the Lord was the crucifixion, which was the ultimate suffering. 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2, and this is the one I referenced. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. Again, don't be surprised, be prepared. If Jesus suffered, you're going to suffer. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. I was thinking one time about the practical aspect about this. You know, you're suffering. And somebody comes to you and says, let's go party. You go, I don't really feel like partying. <laughs> you're suffering. You know, you don't. First thing that happens when you come into suffering you remove sin and you, you repent of sin. Even, even unbelievers have to deal with that, with suffering. No longer to live the rest of the time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Suffering causes us to cease from sin, to live our lives for the will of God. Isaiah 48, 10 through 11. Isaiah 48, 10 through 11. One of my favorite verses. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned, and I will not give my glory to another. Now, if you look carefully at this, it's saying here, you know, gold is tested, silver is tested by fire. But he says, I test you through the furnace of affliction. For his sake he does it, so that you would not profane his name. You represent Christ. People, somebody said one time that you will be the only Jesus someone sees. What do they see? The Lord does not want his name profane. He allows these things in our lives to purify us, that we would actually reflect Jesus. I was thinking about how we have the Lord inside of us, and how the fire causes us to be translucent spiritually so that people can see Jesus in us. Because that's what should happen during suffering. Jesus should be revealed in us. And they say that's the purest gold. gold the purest gold is almost translucent. Here's a quote by Charles Spurgeon, famous revivalist in the 1800s. He says, if the most precious are tried in the fire, are we to escape the crucible? If the diamond must be vexed upon the wheel, are we to be made perfect without suffering? Why and wherefore should we be treated better than our Lord? The firstborn felt the rod, and why not the younger brethren? It is pride which would choose a downy pillow and a silken couch for a soldier of the cross. Wiser far is he who first being resigned to the divine will grows by the energy of grace to be pleased with it. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. I've talked about this before where it's talking about the coming of the Lord. It's talking about the coming of my messenger and we pray for that and yet Look what it says in regard to when he comes. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Below, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, 
He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. One version says a right offering, that he would purify us, that our offering would be righteous, a right offering. George MacDonald was a Victorian poet, a Christian, pastor, theologian. He was uh, one of, uh, I think it was John Lewis Carroll, John Lewis Carroll's mentor and C.S. Lewis claims he inspired him. It was Christian fantasy writing. Throughout his life, MacDonald maintained his conviction that each event came from the hand of his heavenly father for his good. He suffered much. His quiet and persistent optimism triumphed over the many reversals of his life, not because Christian faith shielded him from hardship, but because he believed that hardships and trials were the chief means by which a loving God could perfect his children. Maybe I should read that again. (laughs) He believed hardships and trials were the chief means by which a loving God could perfect his children. What we call evil is the only and best shape which for the person and his condition at the time could be assumed by the best good. The Father only gives good gifts. He's the Father of light. He doesn't change. All that comes into your life is good. Hebrews 12.10 is meant for good. Hebrews 12.10 For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. There's a message by George MacDonald called to the Church of the Laodiceans, and this is a quote from it. He says, the Christian life is a constant fighting. We think Jesus Christ came to save you from suffering and to do you good. He came to save you from your sins, and until you are saved from them, he will step between you and no suffering. Suffering perfects us that we may be partakers of his holiness, bearing the fruit, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Finally, number three, I think this is very practical. (coughs) Suffering equips us for life and ministry. It's a source of equipping. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Suffering causes us to have compassion for the weak and the suffering. Causes us to have compassion. We are to comfort those in trouble with the comfort with which God comforted us. There was a time where I had the uh, privilege of spending a lot of time with uh, Chuck Farah. Those of you who don't know him, he was one of the founders of the church professor of theology, to me, one of the heroes of the faith. I mean, just powerful. And to have the opportunity in his latter years to minister to him because he fought incredible depression uh, at the end of his life. And I'd go pick him up. He was in a nursing home. I'd go pick him up, and we'd walk and spend time together and then have have lunch. And I was going to take him back. And he said, what are you going to be doing the rest of the day? And I said, well, I just have to go shopping after this. He said, well, do you mind if I hang around with you? You know? And I said, no, that's all right. So we're hanging around, and he's just, you know, depressed. You know, I, you know I've never accomplished anything. My life's a total waste. This is Chuck. My life's a total waste. I said, Chuck, I said, I said, let me tell you something. And I can't remember what I said, but it was one really, it was a profound quote. And he goes, oh, that's so good. I said, Chuck, you said that. 
So then I remembered, because I remember in my mind right now, going through the mall, we're in the mall, and I said, well, Chuck, and I told him something else. He goes, oh, I said, you said that. I did that about four or five times. You said that. I said, Chuck, you have no idea. Every day of my life, something comes up that he told me, that he did. I mean, it's amazing to me. Well, he said one time this about the strong strengthening the weak, and I, I saw that in this because, you know, Chuck, I mean, I met Chuck in uh, 1974 in March, two days after I arrived at ORU, and I was so oppressed they took me to him for deliverance, and he handed me a wastebasket and prayed over me, and I gagged into the wastebasket. That's how I met Chuck. You know, and then I got involved in his discipleship program. I met my wife. Just fantastic, great stuff. But anyway. <laughs> but here it was, you know, this man was such a strength to me, and now here I am strengthening him. And I was the weak. I'm in the basket, and now I'm ministering to Chuck. What a privilege. He said the strong should strengthen the weak because the strong never know when they will become the weak. What goes around comes around. Suffering develops in us godly character. Through suffering, we actually become stronger. I've shared this with you, but my son is a retired Special Forces operative, and in the Special Forces unit, they have all these sayings to get you through this intense training. I mean, they basically try to kill you and bring you back to life. In fact, as a SEAL, they drown you, and then they revive you, so you won't fear drowning. I mean, it's just... So you've heard some of these. No pain is no gain. Pain is... This is Josh's favorite. Pain is weakness leaving the body. This is another one he loved. What doesn't kill you will make you stronger. I saw a meme. He said, what doesn't kill you will make you stronger, except bears. Bears will kill you. It said. Okay, this is one I got from the Navy SEALs. The only easy day was yesterday. Inspiring, right? Well, that's reality. This is the truth. Physiological truth is that muscle mass is built through dynamic tension and pressure. The muscle actually tears and then reheals. That's how you build muscle. It is the same in the spiritual. I remember back when, when I was really trying to get Josh uh, more disciplined in these things, I told him, I said, I said, it's just like the physical. I said, and I explained this to him, and I said, you need to discipline yourself. The same in the spiritual. We are made stronger spiritually through suffering. As long as you don't die. But if you die, you get a new body, no more pain, no more tears. You know, I, I used to share this when I was young and preaching at the Jesus Inn, I said, yeah, I said, but the only thing is, I said, you know, it is the process. I said, basically, I want to be at ground zero during a nuclear strike. And that way, in the split second, blinking, there'll be a, a door, and you open the door, and there's Jesus. <clears throat> so I was thinking about Joe Beck. You know, I, I, I made a point. I really love Joe. I don't know what, the, there was something about Joe. I just felt like Joe was special. I don't know what it was, but in a way, kind of a hero. I just, you know, I looked up to him. I really respected him because he just kept going. He wouldn't stop. He was here. You know, he complained some, but then he was here. I said, Joe, I said, you're here. I said, did you wake up this morning? Yeah. Praise God, you know. And then one day he didn't wake up, but he woke up. He woke up in the presence of the Lord. And he went in his sleep. I don't know how they found him. I know my father went in his sleep, and the blanket was a little tousled. Might have been a little struggle. I don't know, but you know, that's, that's 
that's God's grace for Joe. I really felt that. James 1, 2 through 5. James 1, 2 through 5. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Listen to that. Perfect and complete, lacking nothing, because of various trials. I did this teaching once before in a different way, using the same verses. Whenever you teach on suffering, you can't help but use these verses. But it was a progression. The first one said rejoice. The second one said don't be surprised. And then it said have joy. It's like God's just taking you further in. You know? Now he's saying have joy. 1 Peter 5, verse 10. This, is, this shows some of the results. We, we, basically, in, in the earlier one, it says, to be made perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Now it says, may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. And in the New Testament version, I really like this, he said, after you suffered a while, he will restore you and make you, listen to this, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Is that good? Strong, firm, and steadfast. That's developed through suffering. Charles Spurgeon once said this, Glory be to God for the furnace, the hammer, the file. Heaven shall be all the fuller of bliss because we have been filled with anguish here below. And earth shall be better tilled because of the training in the school of adversity. The training in the school of adversity. Heaven fuller of bliss and the tilling of the earth better done because of it. Suffering equips us for life and to minister to the needs of others. Three purposes of suffering in the life of the believer. Number one, we learn obedience. Number two, we are perfected and cleansed. I, I, I think I would put that word maturity in there. It causes us to grow into maturity. Number three, we are equipped for life and ministry. Suffering in the life of a Christian is needful, for it has purpose and benefit both in this life and the life to come. That's what the scriptures say. That's what the scriptures say. I want to share with you two final thoughts on suffering. Number one, and we need to hear this, number one, God is in control. He will not allow you to suffer beyond your ability. I mean, I, I meditated on this verse. That was a key verse for me for years. I got to the place where I said, God, you have a much higher esteem of me than I do. And I remember reading one about how God only allows you to suffer because he loves you. And I just say, Lord, I just wish you didn't love me so much. But here's what it says. We know the verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you such as common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you might be able to bear it. Now we think about this as temptation, temptation to sin. We think about lust, different things. But actually, uh, this, this word in the uh, Greek language is parisimos, and what it actually means is to be putting to the proof, to be tested or tried by adversity. So actually, I'm thinking the temptation here is to fall into unbelief, or doubt as to what's going on. Because really what it's saying here, and I retranslated it according to the Greek, and it says, no trial of adversity has overtaken you, except such as common to man. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tested beyond what you are able. But with the trial of adversity, will make a way of escape that you might be able to bear be able to endure it. He will not allow you 
to suffer. The suffering that you're experiencing is common to man. He said, he will not allow you to, be, to, be, to suffer more than you're able to endure, and he will show a way, provide a way out. God is in control. He oversees every circumstance of your life. I was teaching here one time about being in, the, being in God's hand, and that is one of the most profound things the Lord's ever given me, that we are in the hand of God. We are in Jesus' hand. Jesus and God are one. We're in God's hand. Okay, so he says, basically, nothing can take you out of his hand. Nothing can take you out of his hand. You're in his hand. That means that anything that comes upon you must come in God's hand. It must come through God. And I saw it where he actually measures suffering like a medicine that's needed. A little more. No, no, more. That's enough. Not that one, that one. That's the reality. If you are a Christian, God is in control. He oversees every circumstance of your life. He will not allow you to be tested beyond what you're able. will provide a way of escape that you might be able to endure it. This is a quote by Francis Fenlon, Archbishop of Cambry, Catholic mystic. Late 1400s into the 1500s, he was mentored by Madame Goyon. They actually met one time. Most of the time, they corresponded by letter. He ended up uh, being uh, placed in exile in some small parish. I mean, he was an archbishop. He said he loved it. He always wanted to just be a pastor anyway. He said this, We must carry the cross as a treasure. It is through the cross that we are made worthy of God and conformed to the likeness of his son. Crosses are a part of our daily bread. Listen, God relegates the measure of them according to our real wants, which he knows, and of which we are ignorant. Let him do as he wills, and let us resign ourselves into his hands. Crosses are a part of our daily bread. He relegates and measures them according to our real wants or our real needs. Let him do as he wills. Let us resign ourselves into his hands. God is in control. will not allow you to suffer beyond your ability. Number two. It's only two. The sufferings we endure as Christians are not our sufferings, but actually the sufferings of Christ. We're going to get off a little bit into the mystical here but it's actually very clear and practical when you think about it. Colossians chapter 3, 3. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Galatians 2, 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. If we are truly dead and hid with Christ in God, then it is no longer we who live, but Christ Jesus living in us. A dead person cannot suffer. An old Scottish prophet that I sat under for years said, if you kick a dead dog, he won't bite you. Jesus bore all suffering on the cross of Calvary. All suffering. So there is no practical reason that we can think of for us to have to suffer. He bore all the suffering. It's all on him. To receive suffering, he's got to give you some back. That's what we're going to get to. This is clear. It is Christ who is allowing us to enter into the fellowship of his sufferings. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 13, when it says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing is happening to you, but rejoice to the extent that you are a partaker of Christ's sufferings. He owns it all. He has it all. To get any of it, he has to give it to you. That when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Paul even goes so far in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 through 25 to say this, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, 
and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Richard Wormbrandt, who I really believe was a modern mystic, he said this. Listen to this carefully. This is every man who becomes a Christian becomes an innocent sufferer because he bears punishment he no longer deserves. Immanuel Kant wrote, the criminal has a right to punishment. A former murderer, liar, adulterer, drunkard, or sinner, or whatever kind will continue to suffer for results of his past life, even after conversion. Through repentance, he has become an entirely new creature who normally would not have to suffer. The sorrows and pains which the new man suffers for the old man are a continuation of the sufferings of Christ. It's a mystical reality. That's why it continually talks about when you are suffering, you are in the fellowship of his sufferings. The fellowship of his sufferings. The sufferings that we suffer are actually the fellowship of his sufferings God will not allow more than we can endure, and finally, suffering is needful for the benefit of our spiritual life. I want to read a final quote I just recently found. This is a quote by F.B. Meyer, and uh, F.B. Meyer was actually a friend of D.L. Moody's. He, he taught at the... Uh, uh, conferences in Northfield, Massachusetts that D.L. held. Uh, a lot of books. I've been reading a lot of his stuff. Excellent. He says this, listen. The irons of sorrow and loss and the soul struggle against sin all contribute to developing an iron tenacity and strength of purpose as well as endurance and fortitude. And these traits make up the indispensable foundation and framework of noble character. And again, I've, you know, when I read that, I can't help but think of those that have gone before. Brother Bill, Chuck, noble character. Never run from suffering, but bear it silently, patiently, and submissively with the assurance that it is God's way of instilling iron into your spiritual life. God is looking for iron saints, and since there is no way to impart iron into his people's moral nature except by letting them suffer, he allows them to suffer. There was another verse, and I, I seem to have uh, missed it, but it talks about how God is training us to bend a bow of bronze. And I was sure it was in here, let me look real quick because it's an excellent verse. Yeah, here we go. I skipped over it, okay? And it was in the area about uh, developing, uh, sanctifying, and consecration. Okay, Psalm 118. So, sorry, Psalm 18:32. And uh, this verse recently has been a key, one of my kind of six verses that I hang on to. And this is what's happened. Think about that. He's instilling in you iron, a noble character. It is God who arms me with strength. We already heard how we get strength. He makes my way perfect. We already heard how he perfects us. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and sets me on high places. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. A normal man cannot bend a bow of bronze. This kind of training only comes through suffering. It was said that a bow of bronze, it was like uh, an armored, uh, an armored uh, bullet. You know, it could go through shields, it could do incredible things. But no one could actually bend that bow of bronze. But that's what he's training us to be. He's putting iron metal in us that we might bend the bow of bronze. Let's stand. Thank you, Lord. Thank you.
let's just allow this word to work in us. Thank you, Lord. Grab hold of those parts that spoke to you. Go back and read those verses and meditate on them. Make them part of your life because they will keep you in times of trouble. They will give you solace in times of suffering. The Word of God is all-powerful. It's alive. And it will minister health and strength during those times. Well, Lord, we commit this Word to you. Uh, we continue to pray for those who are afflicted, that your great comfort, the comforter of the Holy Spirit, would minister your grace and your love to them. And then it, we, we know that even in suffering, in your presence, is fullness of joy. The presence of God. Lord, we pray that you do that. You manifest yourself in that place of suffering to those who are suffering. And we thank you. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the anointing of your Holy Spirit. So that this just, just opens the word of God, gives us understanding that light dispels darkness. It says the light came forth and the darkness could not overcome it. And we pronounce that. In Jesus' name, we pronounce that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.